And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And a very good morning to listeners. This is Lalita Chalaya here, taking you through till 9 o'clock. Now we've had all sorts of things happening. If you're just waking up, it's going to be a stormy day today. Lots of wind. And cold, a cold front moved in overnight, according to the Weather Bureau. And of course, um, another traumatic incident in Germany, in Munich. There's been shootings again, six people killed, I think. So it seems violence across the world is continuing, and um, the ongoing saga of um, People dying, it's, it's very sad, but that's what's happening. You, you just have to stop and wonder what is going on in this world. But talking about Europe, we've got um, Kate Hudson, who um, is well-known to people. Now I'll give you details in a minute. And we've got Dr. Jeremy Smith from the Federation University and Zuna, uh, who's a cartoonist from Melbourne, all on our program today. And first we shall go to the interview with Kate Hudson, who is actually the General Secretary of Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the UK, a veteran campaigner and has known uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the, labor, uh, the, labor, the leader of the Labour Party, um, who's under attack at the moment. She knows, she's known him for many decades and they worked together. As you know, Jeremy Corbyn has been a prominent activist and a leader in the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the UK. Kate Hudson is also um, the National Secretary for the Left Uni- Unity Project, which is currently working with the Labour Party, given the attacks by neoliberal elements within the political arena in the UK. They are working together on this project. So let's go to the uh, interview that I conducted a couple of days ago. Um, and uh, just, just a bit of warning, because it was on Scarby, you'll find that a couple of bits may be a little bit unclear, but I wasn't able to edit it out. But they're important points and sort of slides into um, what she's saying. So here we go, Kate Hudson. Welcome to the 3CR, Kate. Thank you so much for offering to talk to us. Pleasure. Now, the UK has been in turmoil for some time now, and uh, especially over the recent past, as, as recent as Monday, uh, we had uh, a major issue ab- about the Triton going on. I wonder if you can explain what happened on Monday and um, what's to be expected since the vote took place Monday. Yes, this has been a long-running debate in Britain about whether or not we should replace our nuclear weapons system, Trident. It's essentially an add-on to the U.S. Trident uh, system, their submarine, ballistic missile submarine fleet, but here by some, particularly by the establishment, it's seen as, we call it, or they call it, our independent nuclear deterrent. And um, 
it's very much seen by the political elites as a kind of a status symbol. Mm. Um, anyway, this question about whether or not it should be replaced has been very, very hotly debated. And it, it's quite significant, in fact, that it has, has actually come to our parliament for a vote in the past. Things like nuclear weapons, they were done behind closed doors. You know, they weren't out there for public and parliamentary debate. So that was a, a step forward. And what we've seen uh, over the past few years is an increasing majority across the country against nuclear weapons uh, because people, well, there's the long-running moral and legal questions, of course, but uh, people have been much more engaged with the issue now because of the cost. At a time when our government is imposing austerity policies, spending what's likely to be around $205 billion on this kind of Cold War weapon system. People don't see that as good value for money. They don't think that's what their money should be spent on. They would rather it was spent on hospitals or educational jobs. Or Many people in the military actually think it should be spent on uh, troops, on equipment for the troops, on planes, on things they can actually use. And, of course, a key reason why people... Many people now have turned against nuclear weapons, even if they were in favour of them before. The reason they've turned against them is because they're not seen as something that meets any of the security threats that we currently face. So things like terrorism, climate change, cyber warfare, pandemics, flooding, all these things that we recognise as 21st century security challenges. Obviously, no one suggests that Trident nuclear weapons could meet those challenges. So people think, well, what on earth is the point of having them? You know, so this, this, uh, this debate has been going on, increasing change in public opinion. And what we've seen politically is, is very interesting as well. If I could just, add, just briefly add this. Sure. Whereas in the past, in Parliament, there was kind of more or less a, a consensus across the main parties uh, in, in favour of nuclear weapons. Now we've seen a new political consensus emerging against. Uh, so all the small, most of the smaller parties, uh, Greens obviously, um, but the Scottish National Party of course, uh, totally against, that's virtually all the Scottish MPs. And of course with Jeremy Corbyn who you will have heard of over of there, I hope, the, the new course. leader of the Labour Party. Yes. He's very much against nuclear weapons, and he's, in fact, he's vice president of campaign for nuclear disarmament. And um, so he's against them too. So this has sort of opened the door further. So that's, that's how things have changed. But then, of course, on Monday, this was more or less the first important vote uh, in the Parliament since we've had our new Prime Minister, the new Conservative Prime Minister, Mrs. Theresa May. Mm. So she wanted to get this through Parliament, show how strong she was, unite her party, and take advantage of Labour divisions on this, because even though Jeremy is against it, and many others, there are many within the Labour Party uh, who are in favour of it, nuclear weapons, and some who just wanted to use it as an opportunity to give Jeremy a kick. You know, so unfortunately it went through Parliament because the Tories have a majority. But nevertheless, it is uh, a, a campaign that is going to continue because 
actually building the submarines won't start for a long time. It takes decades to build them and so on. So you haven't seen the last of this campaign. It will continue. And many people think that these new submarines will never see the light of day because they're just uh, too uh, costly a project. And also they're vulnerable to um, new technological challenges like cyber warfare, underwater drone technology and so on. So that, that's where we are with that one. It seems the Scottish National Party is fully in support of um, Corbyn's policies and, of course, um, in, in conjunction with CND's policies to not to put money into this uh, massive uh, project which is running totally against the social needs of the people. And obviously, as you mentioned, austerity is being felt by the people, and um, particularly in health, education, and so on. And is that coming through to the ranks, that they, they are seeing the money spent on weapons when there's no money being spent on social programs? Oh, absolutely. That, that's a, a really strong theme. In fact, in the past few years, uh, CND has worked very closely with the anti-austerity movement and lots of local groups. I mean, we had a, a rally in Parliament Square on Monday evening and we had speakers from People's Assembly Against Austerity, from the trade unions, from a, a remarkable campaigning group called Disabled People Against the Cuts. You know, that, that link is really, really very strongly being made. And, and just on the uh, question of the SNP, you know, the Scottish National Party, when we were there opposite Parliament, many of the MPs came over to tell us what was happening in the debate. So yes. the SNP MPs, they were coming over to our rally and telling us what was going on inside Parliament. And they are absolutely remarkable. They are 100% against Trident because the Trident nuclear weapons submarines, they are based in Scotland. Oh, okay. So you have the Scottish Parliament is against nuclear weapons, the Scottish Government is against nuclear weapons, all the MPs, the Scottish MPs, SNP MPs in, in Westminster are against Trident, and that yet the Westminster Parliament voted to impose, to reimpose a new generation of nuclear weapons on Scotland. So many people believe that this will be a factor which will trigger a second referendum in Scotland for independence. They're already very uh, angry and dismayed about bre the Brexit vote because Scotland voted to stay in the European Union. So this, that together with this Trident vote, many people believe is likely to trigger a second independence referendum in Scotland. Mm, it's looking very likely and very strong, isn't it? The young parliamentarians from the Scottish National Party are amazing. I listened to some of like, Miss um, Black was fantastic. I was listening to her. She is absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. I must say that, yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Glastonbury Festival. Um, it takes place, it's the the biggest music festival, you know, in Britain, tens of thousands of people go there, and she, we, CND always has a speaking slot on the big pyramid stage, and she came this year to uh, speak on behalf of CND to these tens of thousands of festival goers, and she was just tremendous, mm. really remarkable young woman, inspiring young young woman. But um, it's good that she's in Parliament. So we've got two other subjects I want to cover quickly. One is yes. um, the uh, the Brexit issue, and then of course Corbyn. Uh, very important people are, are you know starved for information about what's happening with Corbyn and the Labour Party. 
And I also want to talk about the international significance of what we call the, the Corbyn factor. So maybe we could start with um, Brexit, since you touched on it with the Scottish National Party. What, what happened there, because uh, a good majority, like 59% of the Labour Party members, actually voted to remain uh, in the EU, but the general populace voted to opt out. So that's interesting because the Tories, on the Tor- in the Tory party, it was, I think, 40% voted to remain. The rest wanted to get out. And um, mm. it, it seems that the people who are non-party members seems to have led this march against um, the EU. What's, what's your, your opinion? Mm. Yes. The, I mean, it was, well, it was a close vote. I mean, it was sort of 17 million to 16 million. So, there were, you know, it wasn't an overwhelming, but it was a clear vote in favour of Brexit. I can't uh, describe to you how terrible the campaign was. It was, I I mean, the decision by the Prime Minister, David Cameron, at that time to call the referendum, the referendum vote, was driven by pressure from the far right. Uh, It was driven by um, UKIP, um, the the kind of far right, uh, very far right uh, nationalist, very a uh, very anti-immigration party. Mm. And the whole, uh, the whole referendum narrative was kind of hinged around terrible op- and extreme opposition to immigration in Britain. Um, and um, being part of the European Union, obviously we're part of the free market, we also have free movement of people um, from EU citizens. Now, Many, there are millions of British people who live else and work elsewhere in Europe. There are millions of European citizens who uh, come and work in Britain. That's a kind of, you know, it's a fair, a fair exchange and movement and so on, you know. And, and immigrants, uh, if you look at the actual facts and figures, hugely benefit our economy um, and, and, you know, our, make a huge contribution to our society. Uh, but what happened was that the far right kind of developed this narrative that immigrants, too many immigrants, were responsible for uh, our failing national health service, not enough houses, uh, not enough jobs, all this sort of thing. Uh, when, of course, those, those problems result from uh, decades now of austerity policies. I mean, the recent austerity policies, but neoliberal economic policies even pursued by the Labour Party under Tony Blair. You know, this is a result of economic policies, neoliberal economic policies and more extreme uh, austerity policies. Nothing to do with migrants. Yet that, this kind of real reason, uh, the real, what was really to blame the economic policies didn't come through in the referendum. And so many people... Uh, I mean, many people who voted for kind of what we describe as little Englanders, they think, oh, we'll much, be much greater again <laughs> if we're out of Europe. We don't have to deal with these Brussels bureaucrats, you know, and people who are against regulation. You know, there's a lot of protective legislation it, that we have in Britain because we are in Europe. They want to have a kind of bonfire of the regulations. So there are no protections for people in the workplace, women's rights protection, all those kinds of things. So the people who just want to get rid of all the kind of restraining and kind of civilising elements of EU legislation. Of course. And then there are the other people who just want to kind of say, okay, we can get out and we don't have to have any immigrants anymore. You know, I mean, so 
that was um, how it developed. And people who are kind of in communities that have been ignored and disregarded by governments for a long time, you know, where big industries have closed down and no money's been invested and so on. Uh, people like that were only hearing it's migrants that are to blame. Mm. That, that truth. And so we had a terrible reactionary racist campaign imposed upon us. And since then, the upsurge in racist attack, anti-immigrant violence, uh, f setting fire to immigrant shops, people being attacked and spat on in the street. It is a very terrible and distressing situation here. Really, really terrible. Mm, that's sad. But the, the, the fact remains that Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, the two main leaders of this uh, very racist campaign in the UK, then abandoned mm. ship once they mm. got the vote. And, it, and, and Farage had a very convenient way of putting it. We've won what we campaigned for, so I'm, you know, abdicating, basically. How do people yeah. see that? Well, we don't quite know how to understand that. Um, maybe it just took a toll on him personally. Who knows? Mm. Um, but, uh, but Boris Johnson, he's far from gone. He's not, uh, he didn't win the, the prime ministership. But he's now foreign secretary, yes. which is one of the three most important jobs in the country. And Theresa May, the new prime minister, she was she was for remain. Um, so it, so we have a prime minister who did want to remain, but she's saying we have to make Brexit work. But she is a right wing Tory. There is no doubt about that. So um, even though we don't have a Brexit prime minister, which could conceivably be a worse situation. Nevertheless, we have a political situation where things have moved to the right because the kind of and the, the, the kind of right, this rise of racism and so on is something that very much has to be challenged. And of course, m moving into your point about Jeremy Corbyn, of course, he he and the Labour Party campaigned for Remain, and as you said, 60 or so percent of uh, Labour members uh, voted Remain and so on. So, you know, that, that he did a good job with that. But because Remain lost, um, people in his party who wished to attack him and, you know, the right and the parliamentary Labour Party, they wish been looking for an excuse to try and get rid of him. Yes. <laughs> the day he came in, mm. they said, oh, right, well, he, he didn't fight hard enough for Remain. He's got to go. So they used this as an excuse to try and move the Labour Party back to the right as well. So in, in, in conjunction with, with Corbyn, he, he's being attacked left, right and centre, so to speak. Um, he Mostly right and centre. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we leave out the left. <laughs> but it, the, the Owen Smith presenting himself as a soft left um, MP, isn't he? It's, um, who's um, contesting the Labour Party leadership, isn't he? Yes, he is. He's, um, he's from Wales, so... He can draw on the kind of long-standing sort of historic uh, links and kind of strong working class base traditionally in Wales. Many leaders of the Labour Party and senior figures in the Labour Party have come from Wales, like Anirin Bevan and Neil Kinnock and so on, people like that. Mm. Um, but to be honest, he is not um, 
someone from the left. So he's he's kind of presenting himself as a kind of soft left unity candidate. But on Monday, for example, he voted for Trident replacement. He said, oh, I used to be a member of CND, but, you know, all this kind of thing. So he's going to... And, of course, he was in Jeremy's sh- shadow cabinet until very recently. But, you know, he thinks that he... Well, I I'm not going to suggest that he's solely motivated by careerism. I don't know him and I wouldn't want to say that. But um, he had a senior position in Jeremy's shadow cabinet until recently, but now he's saying he can do it better. And he has defeated um, Eagle, uh, Angela Eagle, in the kind of hustings to be the candidate to oppose Jeremy. So that's where we are. He's got a bit of interesting history as well. He was a lobbyist for Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company. That can't stand in good stead for him, can it? Even, you know, that he's um, a uh, lobbyist for a major pharmaceutical company uh, speaks volumes. Yes, that's right. You know, (laughs) it's a difficult thing. But, you know, he can... I mean, I haven't really come across him much in the past, but just watching him on television and how he presents himself, you know, he he thinks he can talk the talk, you know, and win over members. But to be honest, um, maybe some people think, oh, you know, maybe regretfully we need to have someone else because, you know, all the MP, most of the MPs are against Jeremy and he's a great guy, but maybe we need to move on in the interest of unity. For everyone who says that, there are probably... You know, like a hundred or even a thousand people who say we've got to stick with Jeremy. He's got the policies. He gets got the support amongst the membership. You know, all the by-elections and things that have happened since he came in. You know, Labour has done very well. You know, so what's the problem? And and they will continue to support Jeremy. I mean, it's really it is a a war between. The majority of the MPs in Parliament who refused to accept his leadership and the overwhelming majority of the Labour Party members, you know, hundreds and thousands of them. The Labour Party hasn't been so big since, I don't know, the early part of the 20th century. It's mm. the biggest party in Britain now. I think it may even be the biggest social democratic party in Europe. It's a huge surge, but instead of embracing the success... You know, these MPs say, oh, no, he's unelectable, you know. And it's, it's unelectable people like uh, Gordon Brown and Neil Kinnock and so on. <laughs> yes. They, you know, I mean, they've got no shame, really. Yes. And, and the interesting part is Labour Party, uh, I just looked up the figures before, is close to 400,000 members, um, whereas, like, the Greens, they have 60,000, the Liberal Democrats have 61,000, the Tories have 134,000. So Labour Party is absolutely massive. Even if you combine all those figures, Labour Party beats them hands down. And this is all because of the, the Corbyn phenomena. And do you think the right wing is fearful, uh, and, and they call Corbyn unelectable, that is within the Labour Party, because they're afraid of um, where... Corbyn's taking the politics of UK, and they they fear that it, this this movement may be unstoppable. Yes, they, it's I mean it's uh, it is a question of the policies. You know, they say Jeremy's not a, a natural leader, and he doesn't you know there's chaos in his office, and you can't get through to them. I mean, all that's all, all nonsense. The reason is that they he he does have. Um, socialist values. He wants to reintroduce 
social democratic parties in policies into the Labour Party, which has been a neoliberal party and a Blair since since the 1990s. You know that that's the truth. It has made that party has made that shift, which all the social democratic parties in Europe have made. You know they've made they've embraced neoliberal economic policies and so on, and rejected social democracy over the last 20 years, and it's led to a crisis. Virtually all of them, you know, because they've all moved to the right, mm. and so you've got a big space. You've got a big space to the left, um, some of which has now been sort of sucked up by parties like UKIP, because there's a vacuum, you know, where the interests of working people aren't being defended by traditional social democratic parties. You know, they're huge problems. But rather than recognising that and thinking, yes, we need to. Actually, now readdress policies in the interests of ordinary people and stop, you know, thinking that, that the unrestrained market is the answer for everyone's problems. They've got to get away from that. No, they think, oh God, Jeremy Corbyn's trying to uh, reclaim the Labour Party for, you know, social democracy. We've got to kick him out and get someone in who will repeat the failed policies of, you know, the leaders over the last few years. If you've just tuned in. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. This is an interview with Kate Hudson, who is the General Secretary of Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the, in the United Kingdom. She's also the National Secretary for Left Unity. We are talking about the latest developments in the U- politics in the UK, including what's happening with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party leadership. And um, in terms of trade unions, uh, Jeremy Corbyn seems to have um, harnessed a majority of the trade unions under his wing. Um, how does yeah. that sit with the membership? Do they, are they happy with that? Because I, I know the, the minor strike time and so on, they had enormous um, problems with Margaret Thatcher and so on. But Corbyn certainly went out and spoke to some of them recently, and he was warmly welcomed by the old minor population. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yes, he's, he's, he's very popular among the trade unions, isn't he? Oh, he is very popular. I think, you know, they, they all support him. All, all the trade unions support him. And, of course, and that's, that's very popular with the ordinary Labour Party members because, you know, many of them will be trade unions. The trade unions founded the Labour Party over a century ago. You know, that is that Labour move, the Labour movement uh, is the Labour Party and the trade unions, you know. And, and, and through Jeremy, there's been a, a kind of re-coalescing of the interests of the ordinary people and organised labour through the trade unions. And that, that's a very, very uh, important and, and powerful thing. Um, one quick thing about um, Jeremy Corbyn's campaign to recruit members of the Labour Party with a £3 yeah. membership has now been... I guess revised or modified by the NEC to cost more than 25 or 25 pounds per membership. How do you think that yeah. that's going? Will they rejoin or, or pay the difference to join up as full, fully voting Labour Party members? Well, um, I mean, what the NEC, the National Executive Committee, have done is is very shocking. You know, he won the rights to be on the ballot paper mm. as the incumbent, but then they very rapidly moved to put a whole range of restrictions. So you had to be a member by a certain date, sometime in January. The £3 thing has gone to £25. And, of course, for many people, you know, they can afford £3. Affording £25 for ordinary working people 
is a very difficult thing. It's mm. almost like putting a tax on being able to support Jeremy Corbyn. You know that, and um, some people have tried to raise money or propose crowdfunding to enable people to join, you know, to pay the £25 if they can't afford it, but that's been ruled illegal under the Labour Party rules and all that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's a disgraceful manoeuvre to stop the real level of support for Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party being reflected in the vote. It's shocking. So the international significance of um, what we term here as a Corbyn um, movement. How, what sort of feedback have you received in terms of international significance of Corbyn uh, becoming the, the leader of the Labour Party and the directions he's taking? Have you had any feedback? Yes, I mean, in, in Europe, certainly, it's raised huge interest um, in, in two ways, I think. One, um, it's seen as the first um, really significant challenge to the way in which the social democratic parties in Europe have moved. Um, you know, I'm just mentioning that about them embracing neoliberalism and kind of free marketism and so on since the 1990s. They, they've all done that, whether it's the Socialist Party in France with the uh, SPD in Germany and PSOE in Spain. They've all done that. And this is the first I mean, and sometimes people within those parties have tried to challenge that, but this is the first time it's been challenged by an elected leader who is attempting to reverse that. And so he calls himself a socialist as well, very clearly. Yes, that's right, he is. He's, he, he calls himself a socialist. He's not, uh, he's not a Marxist. He doesn't come from the revolutionary left, but he's a r real solid um, so left social democratic socialist you know in the kind of very much in the kind of British tradition of Tony Benn you know very mm. wedded to the Labour Party and those English working class traditions you know and uh, in influence of sort of non-conformist religion there you know a, a very kind of I mean maybe it exists elsewhere too that kind of combination of things but we see it here as very much the kind of um, the way sort of uh, the English working class movement has developed a big respect for parliamentarianism. That was a very strong theme with Tony Benn, of course. But, yeah, he's very much in that tradition and uh, very, uh, very courageous, very sort of personally decent and moral and upright and very strong in solidarity campaigns and movements, you know, with uh, uh, internationally, a very strong internationalist, you know, so... That, that's where he's situated. So for someone like him to, uh, to take the leadership of the Labour Party, that's something which other social democratic parties, where, particularly where they wish to bring about a change uh, towards that kind of direction, is something that's very closely watched. And then another thing, um, you may be aware of the kind of the radical left in Europe, the... Yes. You know, the um, Parties like uh, Podemos and Syriza and Die Linke in Germany, yep. you know, there's parties situated to the left of social democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's been big upsurge, particularly uh, where countries and populations have been fighting against the kind of extreme austerity measures, you know, huge upsurge of populations um, and powerful movements developing. 
I mean, they face difficulties trying to, you know, like Syriza in Greece, trying to actually enact the policies of their parties because of such hostility at a European level and from the financial institutions and the ruling class and so on. But that's been there. And it's like, it's as if, you know, because in, in Britain we have this, or in England, we, Westminster, we have the first-past-the-post system. It's very difficult for small parties to come up, as they have done in the other European countries, to meet this challenge. So it's as if the kind of radicalism that we've seen coming through in left parties in Europe has kind of burst through in Britain um, via the Corbyn movement in the Labour Party. So, you know, it's a kind of, it's a very interesting political dynamic, which Mm. is, you know, well, more or less unique in Europe, I think, that that radical surge has found reflection in the kind of neoliberal former Social Democratic Party. And that's why that huge tension is there now within Labour, because it's like there are almost two, well, there are two completely different political perspectives challenging each other within the same party. And also the comments about the um, parliamentarians within the Labour Party who have got very comfortable in their positions and, and don't want to give it up and um, certainly see Corbyn as someone who may um, chuck them out, really, uh, in, in some ways. So they are protecting their turf, so to speak, is one of the, the views that's being floated. Does that come across? Um. Um, yeah, I think that there may well be an element of that. But I think that also that, you know, there is a strong feeling that, um, that for many of these MPs that uh, Blair brought them out of the political wilderness in the uh, 1990s and his repositioning of the Labour Party in the centre ground, sharing many of the policies of the Conservative Party and the neoliberal approach, you know, you had centre-right and centre-left and you didn't really have anything else and it was this kind of almost moving towards sort of more some form of consensus politics in the middle that you had to have the free market economy and you had to have privatisation and all that kind of thing and and many of them thought that Blairism was the way for Labour to be successful and it was successful for a period, um, you know, when La- when Labour came to power in 1997 under Tony Blair, and then they won again another two elections after that. But every time with a with a decreasing majority, you know, because the impact of those policies was felt. Not to mention the impact of Tony Blair's illegal war on Iraq in 2003 and so on. So yes, he did bring them success at one point, but they've had declining success and popularity ever since you know so they need to face up to that you know the right wing and the establishment in the Labour Party needs to face up to the fact that those policies do not bring the party success anymore um, and they do not bring success economic success and prosperity to the country and they don't do anything to support and uh, include and re-enfranchise those communities that feel left behind economically you know that's the truth that kind of labor politics can't offer any future thank you very much kate that is a a fantastic interview and i guess uh, catching up with you after such a long time i think we spoke to you soon after corbyn came to power and and you were saying that you know he didn't have enough people nominate him and it seems so long ago given the 
you know, kilometers he seemed to has, has traveled since then. It's very mm -hmm. refreshing and very inspiring to see what's happening there in the UK. And thank you so much, Kate. And we'll talk again. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Bye. And welcome back. That was an interview with Kate Hudson, who was a general secretary of campaign for nuclear disarmament in the UK. She's also the national secretary for left unity, which is working with Jeremy Corbyn at this stage. Now, moving on, um, we've got an interview with someone from um, Malaysia. He's Zul Kifli Anwar Haig, uh, briefly known as Zuna, and he's a political cartoonist. Zuna has a, a colorful history, and uh, you will find that you know his website is um, very entertaining as well. Zuna won the uh, Cartooning for Peace Award at the UN earlier this year, and he's also the honorary president of Cartooning for Peace Foundation in Geneva. He is um, at the moment still on trial, and he is on trial for criticizing. Uh, the Malaysian government through his cartoons and if he gets charged he's looking at 43 years of um, imprisonment now he was uh, arrested early in February and released without charge but the investigations are going on but Zuna came to Melbourne not long ago and I um, had an interview with him so let's listen to Zulkif Kilfi good morning Zuna and welcome to Australia and more so welcome to 3CR Thank you for offering your time to talk to 3CR. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, you come from Malaysia and you are an um, artist and you draw cartoons, which is actually wonderful. I've seen some of your drawings. It's a pity on radio we can't show the drawings. Uh, yeah. Let's, <laughs> I thought we could focus on the, the political angle of the contribution of art to the discussion, in general discussion in, in uh, Malaysia. Uh, I know you've been under the pump. Uh, they're chasing you for a variety of charges, and I don't know what the exact charges are. If you wish to talk about it, I'd be happy to record it. Yeah. But if you don't, that's okay. Um, so yeah. your situation now is dire. You know, you've you got charges that can result in 43 years of jail or whatever. You've, mm. been, you've been through this before, haven't you? Yeah. I think this is not not the first time. Mm. Uh, now I'm facing nine charges under the Sedition Act, and uh, that's carry a maximum uh, penalty jail jail terms, like you said. But uh, <clears throat> previously, um, uh, the government also arrested me twice under the Sedition Act, and uh, they raided my office several times, my studio in Kuala Lumpur, and they confiscate books and also confiscate um, drawing and uh, the printers also been raided and also um, uh, bookstore around Malaysia. So this is not, not uh, my first time. I've been also investigated under Printing and Places Act and also under the Penal Code and seven of my cartoons have been banned by the government. Mm. So obviously they see you as a threat. I'm just wondering, is this normal? Do, have they done this to other artists in Malaysia before? If I talking about political cartoon, I think this is a new thing in Malaysia. Mm. Because before, before this po uh, political cartoonists, they uh, concentrate or focus more on social commentary rather than political. So, so for for the government, this is this is something new for them. 
and uh, artists normally they don't go hard against government in Malaysia. Any type of artist, they just uh, make a very uh, you know social community, or they just avoid political topic in their work. Mm. I'm curious because the the Malay uh, community is very artistic. I've always enjoyed uh, the art contribution of the Malay community, whether it's weaving baskets or building houses or drawing cartoons or doing paintings. They're extremely artistic. And you being Malay, I'm just surprised that they are after you. And I'm not, I don't quite understand the depth of politics that you portray in your cartoons, how it offends them so much. That I'm yeah, through my work, I, I, my, I, I focus only two subjects, yeah, two main important subjects. They are um, uh, corruption and injustices. So this is, uh, for me, it's very, very important now in Malaysia. As uh, you know, the, the corruption has become, become uh, it's very huge in Malaysia now. And, and the support of the government, you, knowing Malaysian politics now, the support for the government now is, is going down. Taking word from the from the the, the people here, yeah? mm -hmm. so now I think if you ask me why the government now becomes so so hard against uh, cartoonists or artists who, who who criticize them, because for them now they are they are living in 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 uh, uh, inferior, because previous uh, in previous gen general election, the ruling party only received forty seven percent of popular vote, so they are like a minority now. So anything for them uh, is a threat. So, so including cartoon or including other other uh, type of uh, artworks. Uh, but again, this is artist role. That's right. This is artist role. We, we cannot tolerate this. I, I I said so many times that for me, talent is not a gift but a responsibility. Mm. So this is when talking here about responsibility. So I had to perform my duty as cartoonist. Mm. And if they're not happy, I'm also understand if they are not happy with my cartoon. But don't use law and don't use uh, you know force against me. Mm. And it's not um, anything new because in the U.S., for example, when and you know when Bush was uh, president, the cartoonists and the, the the comedians went crazy. They went you know hard against the politics of Bush and the same thing happens in other countries and it's it's a except especially like Australia too, it's an accepted role for artists to interpret the politics of the country. It gives them some focus. Some some dimension, some uh, creative dimension of the, the issues, you know. Yes. So so people will say that uh, normally in the in democratic country they recognize cartoonist role as part of democratic uh, process. Mm. So they have a view, they can have their interpretation in, in their own way. And it's, it's an important role for cartoonists to, to have uh, a role to be commenting on politics. Not all cartoonists uh, get involved in political commentary, but yeah. some do. And you obviously enjoy doing it, and it gives entertainment to people. It gives them, in a way, a relief from the serious um, side of politics, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm. Uh, because the the uh, we talking talk about the medium itself, cartoon is now become a, a very popular medium. Mm. Uh, not only for general public but also for teenagers and kids. They like cartoon. Yes. Uh, because it gives some adults do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody. So so that's why that's why they become a popular popular uh, 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 media of communication. And but for for us, a country that 
we have the country that uh, facing uh, so much so much problems of uh, 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 moral problems yeah moral so for for cartoonists we had to use this to to spread out the message to the public so so the role may be different from uh, from uh, we are talking about cartoonists in in here or maybe in UK or US for them maybe they are, they, are, they really want to criticize the government but for us we had to do more we had to reach out the public and inform the public this is the issue we are facing now through our cartoon make it simple for them to understand you know there are some people that really don't understand this complicated issue of corruption as an example we need to, to tell them via cartoon make it simple and make it fun for them yet it still carry a very strong message and information and also stand hmm. it's it's an amazing way of reaching out to people um, That's right. That's and inc- and they feel included in the in the debate once they understand um, the, the oh, yeah. issues you are presenting that's right. that, that the main purpose if you understand that you can take part yes if you don't they're, they're very easy for for any government to mislead them on the issue Mm. And I guess that's what the the institutions of the state in Malaysia is afraid of, that you are simplifying it enough to yeah, I, motivate people and to participate, isn't it? Yeah, I think that, that's, that's what they are worried because they, are, they also, uh, according to one of the uh, information I got from someone who sat on the meeting uh, to ban my, my books, my cartoon books, uh, he informed me later that Actually, what the government worry is about, uh, they worry that my cartoon can change a teenager perspective yes. of Malaysian politics. So, so this is something, something they worry, you know. They, so, they, they see this dangerous, yeah? This is dangerous for future. Mm. For ruling party, this is dangerous if the young, young kid now start to, to, get, uh, to understand my cartoon and start to make a stand. Uh, on see this is a very serious thing and they start to take part in the debate they start to have their view on that for me uh, maybe for them this is very very dangerous or mm. very negative impact so you initiate critical thinking amongst young people which is actually really important and if you're talking about democracy that has to include critical thinking especially from young people who are rarely listened to yeah that's right I agree with that I agree with that I mean they have to have their own uh, it, it, it doesn't matter who they will support. It doesn't matter. And, mm. But they have to have their own mind and very critical mind. Yes. And we need to allow them to, to uh, get access to various uh, type of information. It's not only one line what the government tries to do in Malaysia. There's only one type of information they, they, they want people to, to know. Mm. Whereas alternative information is, is not in the mainstream media or mainstream newspaper. That's why, uh, for for me, it's very very important to give to to expose to young uh, younger generation uh, about uh, this alt- uh, mainstream media and also alternative media for them to 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 judge by their own and also they can take part. They start to be critical and also they are, they are able to debate things. You know. Mm, and that's a true meaning of democracy for yeah, them to be right. able to make up their own mind, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. This is true. This is this is good. This is very very good uh, uh, democratic process, which is a very we we don't have that in Malaysia currently. And you are the, an innovator in that in that process, which is fantastic. Now we yeah. we also know that you've won some awards, Zuna. Tell us about the awards you've won and why you won them. Yeah, uh, recently, uh, last month in May, I, I, I was awarded with um, 
Cartoonist for Peace Award, which was uh, presented by Kofi uh, Annan, the ex Secretary General of uh, the UN. Uh, the UN, yeah. Yes. And uh, previously, I also uh, last year, end of last year, I also received um, uh, award uh, by Center to Protect Journalists in New York, and previously. Uh, Courage in editorial, editorial cartooning by a cartoonist right network international in Washington. Mm. Um, yeah, because for them, uh, they are, according to them, why they they, they uh, give this award to me because uh, they see my the important thing is to be consistent. Mm. You know, they are they are cartoonists who around the world now faces faces a lot of challenge. From either from the government or also from uh, you know terrorist group or extremists, but according to them, uh, some of them after they face the trip, they they definitely uh, uh, stop drawing, or yes. you know so. But but for me, they said I the the consistent consistency that is what they are they, for them is very valuable for for that how they look at me they look at my quality. Your courage, admirable courage in in yeah. being consistent and yeah. keeping to keeping up the challenge against all these threats and and charges and and you know forty three years of jail. God, that that's enough to frighten anyone. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, it's, it's about it's not about uh, so much about courage. I'm I'm I feel like everybody else, but against this is not an option. It's a duty mm. for for an artist like me. This is no nothing satisfied me, uh, me more than I can fulfill my duty as an artist. Mm. So this is my role. I I, I I do this and I'm very satisfied. So so uh, satisfaction and also the other motivation is uh, I really want to push change. I I want I want uh, to push for total reform in our country mm. via my 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 work. So. Uh, this thing motivate me to continue. Great work, uh, Zuna. And Thank you. Uh, all I can say is uh, I'm sure all listeners will be uh, so impressed with your commitment to um, initiating change and the medium through which you are doing it is uh, just amazing. Um, if people want to buy your book, um, how, how can they do it in Australia? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, even in Malaysia, it's not av available in bookstores. So I now I'm I I uh, do a, an online sale via my f uh, official uh, website. The address is very simple: www.zunar.my. Mm -hmm. So it's Z-U-N-A-R dot M-Y. Dot M-Y. Okay, sounds fantastic. Then there, you can you can purchase my book uh, through that link. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so much, Duna. That was um, really interesting talking to you, and yeah. it's it's lovely to see art playing a big role in politics in uh, Malaysia. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. And of course, we know the role of art, even from the very old feudal days. Um, we cannot forget the court jester, who was the only one who could criticize the king and get away with it. So art um, is a medium to encourage people to participate in democratic discussion in any country's politics is a vital issue and a avenue that um, is not often used enough. Um, so let's hope 
listeners who buy his book to encourage him to continue this journey that he's um, chosen to participate in the p- political discussions in Malaysia. And you are listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. We shall move right along and go to the week that was. Kevin Healy, our regular contributor. A weak solidarity brekkie team listener when a bitterly disappointed Lord Rupert of Wapping was forced to announce in a few pars on a left-hand way-back-of-the-book page that a Black Lives Matter rally had sadly not erupted into violence with left-wing thugs attacking neo-fascists and the, sorry, the constabulary sensibly then not wasting valuable editorial space reporting on what was said or why it was held. Save that for important rallies like the gun lobby or the CFA or a handful of people opposing public transport improvements. Anything that shows just how the electorate got the last state election so horribly wrong. Or the Labor Day, I'm sorry, Mumba March or Anzac or for that matter the great department store's great Christmas parade. People who are not so evil, the fascists are forced to disrupt their gatherings in the interests of the Union Jack and the other bits that comprise our proud national emblem. And as the consequences of the coalition of the killing continue to explode across the Middle East and Europe, hundreds were slaughtered in a possible attempted coup in Turkey, leading to the arrest of pretty much the entire judiciary, non-government media, academia et al., who must have donned trained killer outfits and taken to the streets. Sadly, the arrest of the judiciary means there is no judiciary to try the judiciary and all the other guilty parties. Big Supremo and lover of liberty, freedom and democracy heard him up again declared. Thus, I have been forced to judge all these cases individually, impartially, and I have determined they are all guilty. Prepare the gallows. And in case you're wondering why I said possible attempted coup, there are some cynical types suggesting heard him up again orchestrated the whole thing himself, but the week that was would never suggest that, because as we said, he is a true lover of liberty, freedom and democracy, which brings us to the exemplar of liberty, freedom and democracy. The President reiterated the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world's unswerving support for the democratically elected civilian government. Uh, Then how come you supported the lot running around with swastikas in Ukraine even before the democratically elected civilian government had been overthrown? Sometimes the people get democracy wrong. Uh, What, like Chile electing Allende? Perfect example. Although a bit of a rift between Herdem up again and the US of over demands on that bloke Turkey wants extradited. And the US of says, we'd like to see some proof. And Turkey says, the proof is we suspect him. And the US of says, have you got anything a, a touch stronger? And Turkey says, just send him back. Suspicion is ample proof. And why not? Because if he's sent back, we can be sure he'd get a fair hearing and fair execution. Back here, treated unfairly. See, Broadie Boy made good. Eddie McGuire aren't you rich? Explained he was on heavy painkillers when he caused Indigenous footballer Adam Goods much pain by calling him a monkey. Well, King Kong, same thing. So that explains that. 
poor Eddie, heavy pain. And we can all empathise with Eddie because whenever we have severe pain, our thoughts immediately run to racism, homophobia, sexism. They're listed on the side effects. Warning, may cause racism. Seek medical advice if racism persists. Nothing to do with Eddie's innate nature. And I would never suggest what some people suggest, because to be a class traitor, you need to have an awareness of class identity in the first place. Eddie also described his close mate, the footy show's Sam Moron, whose hysterical humour is based on demeaning those he considers below his intelligence and social and physical Adonis status, which is pretty well everyone except him, as unique, highly intelligent and highly respectful, a deep thinker whose opinions are based on, wait for it, it's what Eddie said, on scholarship. Then again, Eddie thinks calling a black footballer a monkey is intelligent, sharply witty, good for a laugh. But if scholarship applies to Sam Moron, then that appalling Hoonson should be a world-renowned, much-published professor of philosophy. When Eddie and the boys had a big laugh about drowning a woman in icy water, we can but imagine the pain he must have been in. And now we're on it. A short week that was sport. Sponsored by Safe Jab, your favourite syringe. Russia announced graciously that if it was banned from all events at the Olympics, it would not boycott Rio. Raising just a small point, like the tip of your favourite Safe Jab syringe. If they're banned, what exactly are they boycotting? Oh, and a Russian cyclist won Wednesday's stage of the Tour de France, but this being cycling, we know he wouldn't have been anywhere near drugs nor anything performance enhancing. That was a short week that was sport, sponsored by Safe Jab, your favourite syringe. We noticed Parliament's biggest supporter of Zion, Michael Almost Dunby, almost lost his seat three weeks ago, but to his credit, he maintained his principles, telling his Zionist audience in Zionist bits of his electorate he would defy his party's head office and not preference the pro-Palestine evil Greens, handing out a how-to-vote card supporting his principled stand. Down the road in the Greeds are good Albert Park bit of his electorate, he handed out a different how-to-vote cards, preferencing the Greens, which must have also been supporting his principled stand. It certainly was, he explained. The principle is to keep my bum on the plush seat. And on men of principle, I'm sure we all hope that man who's devoted his life to the downtrodden, that doyard of the left, Kim Il Loves Car Companies, is able to continue his great work for the downtrodden. Where would the working people of this country be without him? Can't understand why the so-called left is upset with Kim Il just because he organised votes for little Billy Short and Ambition against his own left candidate three years ago and organised numbers for little Billy to retain the we are as cruel as the government refugee policy against left opposition at the last socialist federal conference. Meaning concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats are obviously left-wing policy. Then again, welcome balance on racism. Big Supremo Malcolm Tunnable reminded us True Blue Aussie has a non-discriminatory immigration policy, a non-discriminatory humanitarian policy. We do not discriminate against all those people on Nauru, Manus, Christmas Island. We treat them all equally and with equal humanity. 
the banks have addressed the odd criticism that's been levelled at them by establishing their own inquiry into bank tellers. The poor maligned victims in the boardrooms knowing bank corruption rip-offs exist only at the very bottom. And this final report we have handed to the independent inquiry shows how lily-white we are. Uh, but, but, but they haven't even started meeting yet. And this final report will eliminate that unnecessary need, truncate their work, save them valuable time, and don't forget, tell us of the public face of our great institutions. Don't forget further, the public pays a fee to be served by these people, and thus we are, as usual, thinking only of the public. Uh, but, but people don't see the tellers as the problem, other than having to pay to be served. Yes, misleading statistics, I'm afraid, distorted by the not insubstantial lodging a complaint fee. Oh, well, at least they're trying to address the problems. Good luck to them. And not totally unrelated, amid the excitement of a visit from the US OBS, a heartbeat from big supremo Joe Biden, his time not much longer, the US OB Chamber of Prophets in True Blue Aussie utilised the occasion to deliver a timely warning to True Blue Aussie that a budget measure to make it easier for our tax office to identify tax dodging, uh, sorry, legal tax minimisation by overseas companies, is unnecessary and will impede the flow of foreign investment into Trublawazi. Trublawazi tax laws are sufficiently robust and the new laws will create uncertainty. Right now we have the certainty we can dodge, uh, sorry, evade, no, how do, how do you say it, and minimize our taxes and, and we all know the last thing business needs is uncertainty. Doubtless, Joe would have had a few words in a few attentive ears. And the Chamber's spot on. We all know how sufficiently robust our laws are at preventing tax evasion. Sorry again, legal tax minimisation. A new study has shown that 80% of men do not believe there is gender bias and pay inequality in the workforce, and only 4% of young men under 25 believe there is a pay gap between men and women in their industry. Got a feeling a parallel survey of women just might come up with a different result. Then again, the blokes might be right, because I can recall back in 1972, I think it was, when the union stroke women won the equal pay case. The bench must have given caring employers a bit of time to phase it in, although 44 years sounds pretty generous. And finally, more than pretty generous, the guest speaker at the Trublawazi Retailers Profits Association Awards next month will be this founder of a business described as a social enterprise tackling global poverty, which currently has about 40 items under its brand. That must explain why we've all noted there is so little poverty left in the world. No, seriously, he's unnecessarily described as a dynamic speaker. Unnecessary, because anyone who can convince people flogging his products will end world poverty must have the gift of the gab. How exciting. The very system which causes poverty will end poverty. Good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin. That's our in-house Contribution to satire. Thank you. Now, we're running a little bit late um, on that one, but um, for those who are just tuning in, this is Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, and we are going on to 
another interview I, I conducted with Jeremy Smith. Now, this is actually, a, I guess, a dedication or a um, eulogy to Lynn Beaton, who was a well-known um, activist in the left and um, passed away about a four weeks ago, and I wanted to do this differently because um, it's an interesting one because it's um, related to the Eureka movement in um, Ballarat. So here's an interview with Dr. Jeremy Smith, who was her supervisor uh, for a project that involved um, UN Heritage application for the Trades Hall building in Ballarat. We are talking to Jeremy, Dr. Jeremy Smith, who is a lecturer at the Foundation University, which, is, which was originally the Ballarat University. And today we're going to talk about Lynn Beaton, who many of you might have known, used to do the program with me. And in a way, it's a, it's a eulogy, but also exploring her fantastic work she did in Ballarat. And Jerry, Dr. Jeremy Smith was um, her supervisor. So welcome to 3CR, Jeremy. Thanks, Lali. Nice to be uh, talking to you this afternoon. Mm. And um, let's start off with uh, why uh, this project actually started, because Lynn started to do a PhD, really, um, before she unfortunately passed away recently. Uh, work on the history of the trades hall in Ballarat, is that correct? That's right. I mean, originally the uh, work came out of uh, an agreement that, that followed uh, negotiations between uh, Ballarat uh, Trades Hall uh, and, uh, well, particularly the Faculty of Education and Arts at the university. Um, so originally in the negotiations uh, between uh, particularly Brett Edgington uh, as Secretary of uh, Ballarat Trades Hall uh, and uh, staff from uh, the faculty, you know, we identified that Collectively, we identified that there was a, a need to uh, do some really robust historical research uh, into what, what is actually quite a proud history of uh, the Trades and Labor Council. And, and some of it has to do with you know, resuscitating um, the stories of um, the lives and struggles of uh, working-class people um, in Ballarat and the Western region. Some of it was about... Uh, establishing uh, a connection, a lineage, if you like, um, to the Eureka Rebellion, um, and if you like, telling a, a story, a history um, of uh, uh, the Red Eureka side of things. Um, that is you know, how um, uh, how uh, the working class in, in Ballarat, uh, you know, contributed to building society um, and the, the struggles that working class people uh, undertook. And some of it was about um, establishing uh, how important um, Ballarat as a region was in the, the formation of the labour movement in, in Australia and, and some of the evidence that suggests that its importance, uh, in fact, could be greater than uh, has been historically understood. Um, I just wanted to say, what triggered uh, this proposal by Ballarat Trade Hall in the first place? Uh, I think it was perhaps just partly the, the vision of um, Brett Edgington as... Uh, Secretary. Uh, it was also uh, the vision provided by um, Ethan McCaw, the late Ethan McCaw, uh, who was then the Ballarat president, the Ballarat Trades Hall president, who also happened to be the um, NTU organiser and who I was working, who I had worked with very closely for a number of years when I was union president um, at uh, Ballarat. So I think it was just sort of a few people getting together. Um, and uh, just really discussing 
what what was kind of missing. Um, and Brett Edgington's got a pretty significant understanding and appreciation for um, the history uh, or of histories um, uh, of in this particular country and in this uh, particular land um, and the contribution of the working class um, to Ballarat's history in particular. So, I mean, I think just um, that, that that vision really uh, enabled um, Ballarat Trades Hall um, to identify the need for uh, some solid historical research and just when the, the forces of Ballarat Trades Hall um, combined with some good people um, from our faculty, uh, the the general view that emerged was that you know there was a possibility for an agreement and funding and um, some good research to take place. So it was a joint project between uh, Ballarat Trades Hall and the Federation University, yeah? It, it was, and it, it took the form of... I mean, there was a memorandum of understanding and agreement um, which um, and, and underpinned all of this and uh, made it all uh, quite possible. So there was a signed agreement um, between the university and uh, Trades Hall. With the agreement in place, we, we could advertise that there were PhDs, um, dedicated PhDs uh, made available uh, and that there would, in fact, be scholarship funding uh, attached to them. Um, so we put out a call for expressions of interest, uh, etc. Um, Lynn's was a successful one. Uh, Lynn uh, applied um, and she outlined her personal history as a, a Labor historian and uh, an activist in the union uh, movement and the workers' movement. And you know, it was a pretty, uh, it was deemed a, a pretty appealing um, expression of interest. So um, after a proper process. Uh, she was uh, awarded a, a place in the PhD program with a scholarship. So um, this was um, uh, fairly significant news, and uh, I'd, I'd lost track of the process a bit myself. Um, but then I was uh, approached um, to uh, consider acting as um, principal supervisor, and I, I knew Lynn by reputation. Um, uh, so uh, you know, when I was approached, I had a look at what she was proposing to do, and um, immediately accepted. And that was uh, the beginning of. Um, a research journey together um, in which I was able to see Lynn uh, conduct some fabulous research and, and to really get a, a great PhD started um, uh, and uh, a, a very solid, uh, I would say, 15 months' work under her belt um, before she unfortunately passed away. Mm. And she's, she's always been, been a writer, hasn't she? She's, she's produced many documents and she even wrote a book on the minor struggles in the UK during the Thatcher period. So there was a solid history behind the, the sort of work she was doing. It was amazing. Um, so it how? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, yes, it, it was indeed. And she talked a lot about her time in England, and it was a very emotional time, as, as you could well imagine. Uh, mm. Very emotional time. But uh, it was also, uh, you know, one of rich experiences of a very militant uh, working class struggle. Um, and uh, she was able to, you know, capture some of those that that story for um, uh, for uh, an Australian audience. Mm. So, how far did you did she get uh, in conjunction with the research? And the revelations were interesting, as far as you're concerned. Can you fill us in? I mean, given that Ballarat's got an f- amazing labour history anyway, so perhaps we could do a little bit of um, a. a, a you know, brief summary of what it was. Of course, uh, the Eureka Rebellion is a, is a typical one we talk about. So what what was the research um, going into? 
So I, th- I think there were really uh, three prongs uh, to the, the research work that she'd uh, achieved um, over the time that she'd been in the PhD program. The first one was to uh, examine um, some of the, the material environment um, of Trades Hall itself, and, and the building itself is rather a significant and interesting um, building. Uh, I mean, the, the first thing to note about it is that it's in Camp Street, Ballarat, um, which, of course, uh, was the government camp uh, during the Eureka Rebellion. In fact, if, if, if anything, it was the, the heart of um, the colonial government um, in Ballarat. So the fact that the Trades Hall was established there in the heart of um, what was actually still um, the uh, uh, official representation of the uh, high end of town um, in the in 19th century um, Ballarat was it was an important toehold um, uh, geographically um, for um, working class organisation uh, in Ballarat. So it was very deliberately chosen that that, that uh, Ballarat Trades Hall would be in fact in Camp Street, um, and the building itself has the, the, the physical environment actually has a significant amount of the history of events involving the Trades and Labor Council uh, built into it. Um, So she was actually really starting to unpick this and different aspects of um, the building and its structure and um, the different uh, historical events that those aspects were connected with. An important part of this naturally was the flag. Um, Ballarat Trades Hall has its own Eureka flag which was uh, made in 1944 and it was a very important part of reviving the Eureka tradition uh, and, in fact, reviving um, public displays of the Eureka flag. It was one of the early uh, public displays of the Eureka flag in the 20th century. So there was a long period of quietude um, around the whole Eureka tradition and around the events. Uh, there was a, a public shame associated with um, Eureka in Ballarat, in fact, for some time um, after after events took place, so reviving it and reviving it, you know, with, with a, a rebel spirit of um, working class struggle was a very, very important uh, episode um, in, uh, well, it was immediately post-war uh, uh, history in Ballarat, and, and Trades Hall was really critical to this as uh, one of the longest standing uh, Trades and Labor Councils in Australia, mm-hmm. the first part of her research anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, Ballarat, you know, in, in some quarters is known as um, the place where the process of democracy originated, um, but I'm sure not everybody will agree with that. So what was the second part of the research? You said there were three prongs to it. Yes, yeah, so the second part was, um, uh, in fact, uh, what she discovered about the uh, 1873 uh, riots in, this, in, uh, in Clunes. And th- this was uh, an early episode um, in Western Victorian um, history. Uh, that is Western Victorian labour history. Uh, it's often been remembered as an anti-Chinese race riot, um, but in fact what Lynn's research was expressly uh, going to show uh, was that it, in fact it was actually a very complex um, industrial uh, conflict uh, where there was a picket line and um, where uh, scab labour, um, and it happened in this case to be mostly Chinese scab labour, uh, was used to break that picket line, and ra- rather than it being just simply a, uh, an episode of working-class white racism uh, towards um, the Chinese, in fact, it was much more complex, and it was actually really an industrial struggle around the eight-hour week. Um, and Lynn's research was uncovering 
quite significant evidence, including on-site evidence in Clunes, um, which uh, demonstrated uh, just how and how important this was as uh, an industrial conflict in contributing to the eight hours uh, movement at that stage, which was really the foundational movement of uh, uh, of trade unions uh, at that time anyway in uh, Victoria and in Australia, um, and just how important Clunes and, and Ballarat were um, at that time in uh, in making uh, breakthroughs in, in the struggle for uh, the generalising the 80-hour day. Um, and, so that, and that was an important small bit of research. Uh, so was there um, other strikes where Chinese labour was used as cab labour within uh, Ballarat? No, not in Ballarat, not to the best of my knowledge at that, that time. And it was um, the uh, strike at Clunes, which was the, the critical episode, um, it was very important in the, the region, um, and, but that doesn't necessarily uh, figure in uh, Australian national history and uh, the, the bigger history of democracy, which, which tends to forget, you know, this important region of um, struggle. So mm. um, I'm not a, I'm not aware of scab labour being used in Ballarat more generally at that point. So mm. I mean, that I suppose another complex dimension of uh, the particular episode in question. You know, I mean, generally what what people understand is that there were Chinese. Uh, Migrants who came in to mine gold—that's generally the impression people get mm. when you when you visit the the gold mines in Ballarat, the tourist attraction. Now, that's a sort of history you get. You don't get um, the use of Chinese labor as cab labor uh, by the employers. And and you know, I was just thinking as you're speaking, not much has changed these days, has it? They're still bagging the Chinese. <laughs> and, yes, yes, and um, yes. it's that it's. You know, it, it almost rolls into racism, doesn't it? The way it's presented and, and discussed and uh, the way it pans out in, in many quarters, it sort of um, spills over into that arena. And then, then you have to unpick um, the details of that. And obviously Lynn was doing a good job there unpi- unpicking that aspect of that particular labor struggle. Okay, what about the third prong, um, Jeremy? What was that approach? Okay, so the third prong was uh, that Lynn was really starting to dig into the archives, uh, particularly the Noel Butlin archives, as they're known, uh, which includes, amongst other things, uh, minutes of uh, eight hours uh, committee, um, early documents of the Ballarat Trades and Labor Council, uh, and uh, a number of uh, other documents covering initiatives of uh, the Ballarat Trades and Labor Council. So the, these documents contain, if you like, the, the raw materials um, of what the Trades and Labor Council was doing in its early days and what the what the spirit and tenor of the times were. Um, there is in there actually um, a set of minutes which uh, arguably could be seen to be a document that um, was establishing something like the rules of the Australian Labor Party or rather one of the Australian Labor parties, as they were back then. And, in fact, actually, that meeting took place um, two months, uh, a full two months before um, the uh, meeting at Bar Colden, which um, formulated um, the initiative for the Labor Party. So, I mean, there's kind of even a historical argument that what was going on in Ballarat and in the Ballarat Trades and and Labor Council um, was formative, obviously, for the trade union movement um, as a whole, in Australia, um, but possibly there could also be a case that what was going on was formative for the uh, Labor Party. So, I mean, obviously there's some historical and heritage interest in that second latter site. Um, 
One thing that Lynn, I think, was particularly keen on, uh, as indeed I was as supervisor, um, was establishing um, the independent, uh, an independent history for um, the labour movement in, in Ballarat for the trade union movement, and to show that the trade union movement had dynamics of its own and had a history of its own that was uh, separate from later developments around the Labor Party. Nonetheless, there, there is a bit of a heritage question there about uh, the extent to which um, the Ballarat trade unions contributed to the formation of um, the Labor Party. So this was another side to it as well that was coming out in the, the third prong of the, the research, and that was to look uh, specifically um, in the archives for um, the documents around those early uh, years of um, Ballarat Trades and Labor Council. So it was, it was going to feed into the other two prongs as time went on. Uh, unfortunately, that, that's something that, uh, for um, tragic reasons, uh, has been cut short. Hmm. So do you think this project will continue? We'll find another person to continue this project? Well, look, we hope so. I mean, we... We just had some preliminary informal um, chats uh, at this stage about it. You know, the, the people who are concerned, and we, you know, we want to wait um, for a, an appropriate period of time um, before we look at some further discussions around how to continue the, the work that was at the start of the project. Um, and you know, we'll obviously need to review the agreement between the university and uh, uh, Bellow Trades and Labor Council. But I, I know there's uh, a spirit of willingness. Um, certainly on the side of the Ballarat uh, Trades and Labor Council to continue the partnership with the university and uh, the, the continue uh, the research that Lynn did begin. And certainly for my part, I'm, I'm, I'm committed on remaining involved and everybody I've spoken to at the university on the university side, um, all the major uh, people who have been involved in managing this so far is, are still very keen to do it. But I think once time has passed, then we would start to look around for fresh... Uh, PhD candidates to continue um, the work and I think that's an important way to remember Lynn too um, and uh, the commitment she showed to it um, uh, in this in the fabulous research she did um, in the, the very last period of her extremely rich life. Hmm. The reason I brought up um, a continuation of the project and what you're doing is because you mentioned heritage um, the element there. Um, now you also mentioned that they, you might be considering putting in a heritage claim on the building to the UN. Oh, am I wrong? Just, just fill, fill us a little bit about that. Yeah, so there, there is interest um, within Trades Hall and indeed um, from, from people who are involved in Australian history at uh, Federation University. There, there is interest on both sides in uh, a, a claim to UNESCO uh, in particular around the heritage value of uh, the Trades Hall uh, building in, in Camp Street in Ballarat. Um, there's also a bit of interest, certainly from Trades Hall, uh, around um, the uh, minutes um, of the uh, Ballarat Trades and Labor Council, uh, the early minutes in particular, and how they, whether this is a heritage document um, of uh, listable value mm. uh, and something that contributed to Australian political history uh, by um, providing formative ideas around the Labor Party. So there's, there's really, if you like, two things that might win uh, for a UNESCO um, listing. Um, and one, one is certainly the building, and there's, there's a general feeling about that. The other one is uh, the, the question of um, the uh, 1890s minutes um, and whether the value, the political value, um, in terms of those minutes contributing to the formation of 
um, the Labor Party can, can be established sufficiently for a heritage listing. So, I mean, there, there's a couple of questions there. We, we've got experts who um, know things about uh, putting in heritage um, applications to UNESCO who, who can um, help with this. So, should the work resume, should it reach a certain point, um, then I uh, think, you know, that that kind of campaign for a heritage listing um, uh, could go ahead, which would be indeed, I think, a good campaign um, for um, uh, this institution of working-class organisation in Australia. Mm. And we'll put um, Lynn's name in good stead um, and a record of, of uh, you know, enormous contribution to the labour movement in, in more than one aspect. And in this particular one, it will be etched at the um, UNESCO level if it just happens and, and, and is finalised. That will be exciting. It sure would be. Yeah. Mm. But thank you so much, Jeremy. And um, this is, in a way, a eulogy to Lynn. I just wanted to do it differently um, because many people have spoken and even at a memorial, lots of people contributed. But, um, you know, this is to show that the quality and the amount of work she's done throughout her life is, is amazing. And this is, I guess, the crescendo, in a sense. If she had completed it, it would have been better. But nevertheless, her name will live on in the form of this contribution she's um, partially made to this research. And thank you so much for talking to 3CR, Jeremy, about um, your involvement with uh, Lynn's work and the supervision. And uh, certainly uh, adding further richness to uh, the labour history of Ballarat. Yeah, a pleasure, Lali. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Jeremy. Bye. Bye. That was... Um, Dr. Jeremy Smith from the Federation University talking about Lynn Beaton and, of course, um, the labour history of Ballarat. We also have to thank Kate Hudson, the General Secretary of um, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the UK, and Kevin Healy, our local satirist. I can never say that word properly. And Azuna, the political cartoonist from Malaysia. So I hope you enjoyed the show. I am a little bit short of time to go into announcements, but there are the ongoing... Um, protests. One is the housing one in 18 Bendigo Street in Collingwood and the CUB workers, um, 77 South Bank Boulevard. So please visit them. Two movies coming up next Saturday and Sunday. Uh, National Bird, it's about Afghanistan and drones. Fire at Sea, uh, that's about um, Europe's refugee crisis. That's at the Comedy Theatre. The National Bird is showing at ACME 1.30 on next Saturday and the um, Fire at Sea is showing at the Comedy Theatre. Um, it's 2.40 Exhibition Street. That's 1.30 p.m. And um, I better leave the studio before I get kicked out. And Asia Pacific Currents is standing outside the door to come in. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>